1: brief. (laughs) Anyway, listen to our amazing NBA podcast, The Mismatch.
0: Or don't. We really don't care. We're probably going to win a million awards either way. (laughs) Chris, we do care, so don't say that. Please subscribe and listen to The Mismatch only on Spotify. Did you really call me a bozo? (laughs) This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Hello, media consumers. Welcome to PressBox. Brian
2: Curtis of The Ringer here, along with producer Erica Cervantes. During the NBA Finals, you might have heard me talking about how much I missed the presence of ESPN's Mike Breen. Missed his voice. Missed the airline pilot-like control he brings to a basketball game. Missed his catchphrase. Bang! Bang! Well, after sitting out two finals games for a positive COVID test, Breen is back on television. And now he's on this podcast, too. Breen and I talked about what it was like to watch the finals rather than call them, his origin story in the business, and what those NBA referees are doing to buzzer beaters. Let's get this out before the official review. Here's Mike Breen. All right, Mike, you missed three games after testing positive for COVID, including two finals games. How do you feel now?
3: Feel oh, great. Um, you know, Brian, I, I, I tested positive, but I, I didn't have symptoms. They were testing me. You know, I flew out to San Francisco. They were testing me twice a day, and every day it came back positive. But I didn't have any symptoms, so, so it was frustrating. You felt like a, a, like a defendant waiting for the jury to come in. Is he guilty or not guilty twice a day? And like, oh. And then he had this guilt feeling when he tested positive, but I felt fine through it, and I feel uh, I feel great now. Thank you.
2: Had you ever missed a big game in your career because of laryngitis or anything like that?
3: No. Um, and and the, the frustrating part was because you felt you could call the game because you felt fine. Um, although I think the alternative of, of feeling horrible would have been would have been a heck of a lot worse. So the good thing was I didn't feel bad. The bad thing is I'm watching these games that I. I, uh, I lived to call.
2: What was that experience like?
3: It, it was, well, it was bizarre for two reasons. Number one, um, again, because you build a whole year up to, to get to this point. And then number two, I'm sitting in a hotel room. I was in my hotel room in San Francisco for six straight days. And, uh, you know, this is not a lot to do. You try and figure it out, watch TV, you read, you call people. But I, I centered my entire day around, when the game started, like I was, you know, this big fan of the team instead, I'm a big fan of the broadcast team and of, and just of the event. So, uh, and then to sit there and watch it was, uh, yeah, it was bizarre. I'll say that.
2: What'd you notice about those games on TV that you wouldn't have seen if you were sitting courtside?
3: Um, you know, that's a good question. I I think, um, you know, because of, of the job that I have, you really watch for what the announcers are doing. You watch for the directors cuts. you watch for when graphics come in, and in some ways, you appreciate it a little bit more when it's done perfectly. Um, you know when you call in a game, you're just so caught up in making sure you're seeing exactly what's going on that you don't notice that those nuances from a broadcasting standpoint you know we we have our, our crew is just phenomenal from from producer Tim Corrigan director the uh, new director this year is Mike Schwab and the camera guys. I, I've said long that um, the camera operators are the unsung heroes of our business. And when you watch the game um, on TV, you realize just how good these guys are and gals. They, they just they seem to nail every shot. They seem to get every shot you want. It, it's it's incredible how good they are. So my appreciation for their work uh, goes a lot higher when you when you have a chance to sit back and watch it.
2: This is unfolding in front of you on a TV screen, rather than happening in in your ear and on a monitor in front of you while you're doing calling the game.
3: Right, exactly. And you know, you know, you know what they're saying in the truck. You know what they're saying. Um, but to see it, just watching it while while you're not working is, um, you know, it's just so impressive how how they do their work every day. And I, you know, they they never get enough credit. Um, but for me, they were getting a lot of credit watching it at the hotel.
2: Here's a small production moment from last night. First quarter, Draymond green has that amazing ball fake turns around then goes to the hoop and dunks the ball. Celtics call timeout, which you mentioned, and then you lay out and ESPN doesn't use the typical bumper music to take us into commercial. They just take in the crowd from chase center to play us to commercial. Is that something you guys and the producers in the truck come up with on the fly?
3: Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's strictly a fuel on that, Brian. And I've, I've long believed that's, I I think that's a a great way to do it. Um, I'm I'm kind of a less is more type with, with that type of stuff. Now we probably wouldn't have done that if it was, the game was in Boston, but because it's in golden state, because the crowd goes crazy. um, I I just think it's, it's like having an extra announcer that, that says the perfect thing and that's nothing. And that's the crowd. And, you know, one of the other, uh, broadcasters that I was influenced by is Pat Summerall. And, you know, Pat, I mean, he just perfected the concise call and let the moment take over and in the crowd. I, I think Joe Buck does that as well as anybody who's ever done that. He just, just knows when to do it. And from years from doing it, you know, you can just tell the swell of the crowd, this is a time to kind of get out there because, you know, the human voice is not made to override that kind of noise. And, and I think it works. And, And we're all certainly on board with that. And it's not just me, Mark and Jeff. um, They really have a great feel for that as well.
2: First half of last night's game was pretty uneven, pretty sluggish at times. Then the third quarter starts and the basketball just really, really picks up. Do you perk up on at courtside when that happens? Do you get more excited?
3: No doubt. Um, Although in the final, even as you say, and you're being and kind. So, some of that was such ragged play in that first half. The defense had a lot to do with it, um, but it wasn't the most beautiful basketball to watch in the first half. But since it's the finals and the emotion and the intensity are there, you're still, you're still fired up. If that's a regular season game, you're thinking, oh my goodness, this game is just brutal right now. So when it turns like that and you get um, two teams playing at a high level and the ball's flying all over the place and they're going up and down the floor there's no question you you start to sit up a little closer on your chair and um again that's selfishly that's what we live for um you know those kind of moments those kind of stretches
2: how does your job change during the finals
3: (sighs) um it's just you you just feel um pressure is the wrong word i've always felt you, you feel a responsibility To make sure you get it, because these are the big moments in in a lot of these players' careers. Um, It's when I first started. My first finals was uh, 2006. It was Miami, Dallas, and I did it with UB. I've never been so nervous in all my life. I I was I was petrified, quite honestly, because you're overwhelmed by how many people are just in the arena. You're not thinking about how many people are at home watching. It just it, it takes on a a life of its own. And I remember before. 2006 i got a call from an espn executive and they told me you know you realize you have to you have to call the finals differently because there's a lot of casual fans who know nothing about basketball so you have to explain things and i must have gotten that reminder like three or four times before game one and i'm like okay i I get it but you know i'm trying to figure out how to balance it so the game starts and I'm probably exaggerating. I, I've never gone back to watch this. But in the first quarter, I think I explained what a free throw was just to, to <laughs> and to appease these casual fans who've never watched a game all year. And I was clearly out of sorts. And and God bless Ubi, who is just an absolute treasure. And after the first time out, Ubi reaches over and he grabs my arm. And he could see that I was... I had all this anxiety and he grabs my arm and he goes, kid, just call a game the way you always do. And I, it's like, it was lifted from me, this burden that I had. And I exhaled and just started calling it and forgot about doing that. I mean, there are certain things that you can to perhaps that come up. That's a little odd that you'll explain, but I was all twisted around and, uh, and you be saved me that day, but it was all part of the nerves of it. And it, it took me a couple of years, quite honestly, before you, you can just put that all out. It, it really is. Um, it's an overwhelming experience at the arena and the players say the same thing. They, they've never seen so many people on the court before the game. And you can tell. And then obviously, Brian, the the, the intensity from the opening tip on every finals game is uh, when you're up that close, it, it's exhilarating to see, to, to see these players, these great athletes um, and how much it means to them.
2: Hubie seems like the perfect guy to bring you back down to earth.
3: Oh, oh, there's no question. I mean, he's been like a he's been like a father to me. Um, it's been one of the joys of my life, not only working with him, but for us to become such wonderful friends. And he's because of moments like that. He he's going to tell you what you need to hear, not necessarily uh, what you want to hear.
2: You grew up in Yonkers, New York. When as a kid did you first know you wanted to be an announcer?
3: Probably around um, I'm going to say sixteen or seventeen. I played high school sports I was a high school baseball and basketball player um, but one of the good things or one of the strengths I have is recognized as limitations and and I knew that <laughs> I wasn't going to be able to play in college although I did go for like a walk-on tryout at Fordham I, I thought about it but there was a um, um, we used to play wiffle ball on this one street every day and there was this a guy who was in college who was a friend of all of us who built a radio studio in his basement and he used to spin records. So like after a doubleheader of a wiffle ball game, we would sit in his basement and he would be like the DJ on his fake radio station. And one day he asked me, because uh, he had to go do something for his mother. He says, why don't you sit in and you be the DJ for, for the next half hour. And I did it and I loved it. And it was the first time that was put into my head. Uh, and um, he also said, he goes, you know, you should think about doing this. year." you have a you have a decent voice etc cetera, etc cetera. so that's the first time that, that it, it got into my head and then that's why i went to fordham uh, which had such a great college radio station
2: when you told your parents you wanted to be an announcer what did they make of that
3: yeah well my my dad god bless him um he he would have cuz he had heard all these stories that that uh, it's a really difficult business to get into and not very many people make it so he had friends of his in other fields who were um, calling me and saying, hey, listen, if you go this route, I can help you get a job out of college. Not that he was trying to discourage me. He just was worried I wasn't ever going to get a job in it because he had heard it's, it's an impossibility. And the ironic thing was he was, a, he was a steam fitter, my father, in construction. And when I got out of college, I worked up at a small radio station for, for Poughkeepsie for two and a half years, not making any money, living by myself um, in a tiny little apartment. And I was sending out resumes all over the place trying to get jobs, and nothing was happening. And I called him after two and a half years, and I said, hey, Dad, send me the, the uh, application for the Steamfitters Union. Uh, I can't do this anymore. And he had remembered that I told him, give me five years. I, I want to put five years in. And um, it wasn't a five years. So he said to me, he goes, what happened to the five years? I said, I can't take it anymore. And uh, he said, ah, keep going a little bit. Give it to you five years. And fortunately, I didn't become a steam fitter, which would have been a, a noble and fine profession. But um, because he told me not stick with it, I, uh, I kept going.
2: You mentioned Fordham. You're there with Michael Kay, now Yankees announcer, New York radio host, and Charlie Slows, who's the play-by-play guy for the Washington Nationals. Did you guys have one of those things where you had beers and had one of those, here's what we're going to do when we grow up talks?
3: Yeah, um, Brian, you're going to think I'm making this up, um, but uh, Kay and I, we've been best friends for over 40 years, so Michael and I would go into the, the cafeteria and we'd sit, and we'd sit with all our buddies who were all into the, the radio station, and he would say, my dream job is to be the voice of the Yankees, and I would say, my dream job is to be the voice of the Knicks, and then he would laugh and say, two fools who really think something like this is going to happen, um, and it's it's unbelievable. And and I don't mean to bore you with another story, but so when I joined the radio station as a freshman, I, I was pretty introverted, uh, fairly shy. And I was going to all these workshops that they taught you how to broadcast, taught you how to edit tape, all that kind of stuff, how to write copy. But I wasn't feeling part of the station. Um, back then, you know, the seniors that were in charge of it, some of them, uh, they paid more attention to the freshman girls than they did the freshman guys. And, and I just felt like, you know, this isn't working that well. And um, so I'm I'm thinking, maybe, maybe this is for me. And I walk into the radio station, and there's Kay. Now I'd never met him. He was a year ahead of me. And he's having an argument with the most beautiful girl on campus. And he's telling her that he can see it in her eyes that she wants to date him. I know you want, I know you want me, he's saying. And she's looking at him like, you would be the last man on earth I would ever date. The last man on earth. So I'm laughing my head off and I'm saying to myself, you know what? This guy, this there's something about this guy. So after they had their little thing, I went up and introduced myself to him. And I mean, Brian, from that moment on, we became best friends. He introduced me to everybody else at the station. And all of a sudden I had friends and I felt part of it. Um, so I've had these little nudges first from my dad and then from Michael Kay that, that uh, maybe changed the course of whatever I was going to do for a living. And the
2: woman did not, in fact, date him at any point?
3: He had no chance.
2: <laughs> you mentioned your period casting around for stuff. Then you wind up as a regular on the Don Imus radio show circa 1989. As an update guy, what was an Imus sports update like?
3: Uh <laughs> The first six months, I was miserable. I'd go home to my wife. And again, this seems to be a recurring theme of me wanting to give up on my dream. But I kept saying to my wife, I can't I can't do this because he would just he would just beat me up verbally every day because he didn't want he didn't want the normal sports cast. Um, He wanted something different. He wanted something to have fun. And all I was worried about was maintaining my, quote unquote, sports credibility. So. He would just keep hammering me on that. And um, finally one day I went in and and I, I made a joke about something. And he thought that was the greatest thing in the world. And I, I got accustomed to it. But learning from them was um, and not just I'm as Charles McCord, Bernard McGurk, the producer, uh, to, to think on the fly. I really believe it helped me in my in my play by play because those guys were so quick in coming back and forth, although it it didn't start well. Um, the first day that I ever worked with Imus was a fill-in for Don Crickey. Don Crickey, who's one, one of the great voices of all time, was a great playboy, playboy. He used to miss every Friday and Monday on Imus because of um, his NFL uh, assignments. So I asked the program director, could I fill in? And I was, I was about 25 years old at the time. So he says, let's go back to Imus's office uh, and see if he says yes. So we go back to his office and he was still drinking back in the day. That's before he became sober. And he's sitting hunched over in his chair. It's like two o'clock in the afternoon. And he's already three sheets to the wind. And the the program director says, um, hey, Don, this is Mike Green. He's the the young producer on the the night talk show. Can he fill in for Cricket? And uh, Imus, without even raising his head, says, yeah, that's fine. Now get the F out of my office, which was a typical line from him. So I'm all fired up. I'm going to be on the Imus show, which I listened to when I was in high school and growing up. The next morning I go in, I sit down next to him for my first uh, radio uh, sportscast at about six, 10 in in the morning. And he's looking at me. He has no idea who I am. And he hits his mute button. And he says to Charles McCord, his news guy, he motions to him, keep talking. So he leans over to me while McCord's doing the news. And he says, who the F are you? And why are you in my effing studio? And I'm like, I start to explain to him and he puts on his mic. He goes, Charles, Charles, this kid who looks like he's 16, he says he's filling in for Cricky. Have you ever seen him before? And that was my first, first moment on the air with IMAS. it was, um, it was one of the best things that happened in my career. It was so much fun. Um, you know, it was all crazy humor, stuff that you can't do today. Um, and he was, he was brilliant. He really was brilliant. And, uh, and he taught me a lot
2: you would come in and write what we would recognize as almost old-fashioned radio bits that you would deliver during the sports update. Is that right?
3: Yes. And, and you know, it, it took me a while to, to figure out what he liked and what worked um, and what I knew would play off him well. And it, it really forced you to, to, to come ready every day. That was the thing with him. I could have Monday through Thursday, I could have great bits and, and make them laugh but if I had an off day on Friday, man, he, was, he would jump you. He was, he was hard. He was tough. Um, but he made you better. I mean, he really pushed you to, to make sure you, you brought some material every day.
2: There's a moment in January 95 where you delivered the scoop on the air that the Jets had fired their head coach, Pete Carroll. But you did it in such a jokey way, reporting that they had replaced him with Weeb Eubank, <laughs> the former Jet coach, that it was not totally clear to listeners that you guys had a scoop,
3: <laughs> yes. But that, well, that was the best. The best part is you could just do stuff like that, and he loved it. The audience seemed to like it. It'd always be one or two people that was that were upset that you know you weren't taking something seriously. But he taught me that um, you know having a sense of humor on the air that people love that, and it's not going to affect my my quote unquote sports credibility because it's a complete different forum and it's a different job. And it took me a while to get there, but. It, uh, it, it really was so much fun. It, the talent on that show, um, the writing and the, the, just the, the, the brilliance of some of them, Charles McCord is one of the smartest people I've ever been around. Um, it really forced you to, to, to try and figure out and, and do your best because you wanted to please them. Um, you know, I, it, 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 was a great, great experience, Brian.
2: The way I almost told the story was you mentioned sometime you were afraid it would hurt your credibility and he said, Mike, you don't have any credibility.
3: Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh it's you get I get crushed. But that's the one thing I could deal with after a while. Because I grew up in a house of six boys where we you know we not only verbally abused each other, we physically abused each other. So all I got from him was verbal abuse. So uh, I could I could deal with that.
1: This episode is brought to you by hotels.com.
0: View its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com.
2: You get the Knicks radio job in 1992. You're 31 years old. You told us about your first finals game. What was your first Knicks game like?
3: Um, I, I do remember having a dream the night before. And I've had this dream, I'd say every couple of years, it comes back where uh, I was sitting at court, the two teams come out on the floor and you don't recognize one single player. They're all players you've never seen. And all of a sudden you're looking at your notes and then you wake up in a cold sweat. So that was the dream I had the night before. I'll never forget that. And um, <laughs> I do remember I talked so fast during that radio game. Um and I must have just sounded like I was 11 years old, but it was one of the highlights of my life um, because I was a Nick fan since I was a kid and to actually get that. Um, and, you know, that's, I remember when I got the call that I got the job, Mike McCarthy is the man who hired me and uh, who kind of changed my life. But right after he called to tell me, Marv was out in Portland uh, doing something with the Dream Team uh, like their pre exhibition and I got a call at my house from Marv to uh to welcome me to Nick's Nick's basketball and it was you know just just a thrill of a lifetime to hear from him and and then we got to travel together a lot with the team on the team charter so it was um you know I, I, if you would have told me back then that I'd been doing Knicks, I'd be doing Knicks radio for the next 30 40 years I'd have signed up for that right then and there
2: that dream, that's the normal person's version of the I didn't study for the test dream.
3: Exactly. Exactly. And I've had that too. But that's for for a play-by-play geek. It's that's the dream that you at least that's one I've had. And every once in a while I have it again. It's so funny how it rears its ugly head every once in a while. But that's that's the didn't study for the test dream. Yeah. You
2: know? Knicks won 60 games that season, finished first in the Eastern Conference. And I read that your dad got to sit behind you during the playoffs and listen to you call the game on headphones. What was that experience like?
3: Um, You know, when you're a father of six boys um, and you're in a house, that type of house, sports is it's it's not an option. It's a way of life. And he's the one that led that. You know, he he was a big sports fan. He was always watching things. And, um, you know, he played you know, on the men's softball team that we we would always go and watch them. So, um, you know, my dad is was and, and still is my idol. He passed uh, back 11 years ago, but to be able to have him come in and and sit there with me and sit with Clyde Frazier, who was you know right next to me, um, you know, those are the, the the type of things that that mean so much. And you know, he was proud and and he loved every minute minute of it. So it was. Um, it was pretty cool, Brian.
2: What was different about your sound in 92 compared to your current sound?
3: Uh, again, I talk when I, every once in a while, I hear a tape from, from back in the day, I talk so damn fast. Um, and I did sound like I was probably 13 to 14 years old when I was first, first starting. Um, and and the, the radio, it took me, when I went from, from radio to TV, it took me a while, you know, make that adjustment. I, it's harder to go from t v to radio. Radio is a much more difficult game to call because you've got to supply everything but the the adjustment to make was um, to go to t v is is obviously to talk less and you really got you know you got figure that out where you have to give enough stuff, but at the same time let the picture tell a lot of the story as well. But my biggest problem when I first started was I just talked so damn fast.
2: How long did it take you to slow down?
3: Um, you know what? <sighs> I think fairly quickly. Um, But I do remember that every year on radio and and even so still on TV, because I I, I take off now during the summer, I stopped doing every, all the other sports um, that I tried to get involved in. I did the NFL and things like that for a while. But so I'm off like four months after the NBA season ends. And I do find that every season it takes about, say around 10 games before you get back into that rhythm, whether it was radio, whether it's TV. Uh, it's just something that, you know, it, it, it takes a little while before you, you just get back in shape. It's like, you know, conditioning to play, conditioning to talk, same type of thing. Um, but to answer your question, I don't remember exactly. I don't have the greatest recall, Brian, as you could probably tell. But um, uh, it, it, every year it took me a little while.
2: What happens in February 2006, to fast forward a few years, that allows you to get the top job at ESPN?
3: Well, um, NBC lost. I was doing games for NBC, and um, I was doing arena football. And arena football was kind of fun once you got to the arena and you did the game. It was, it was kind of cool to call, and the people you work with, I, I, had, I had great fun with, with the people I work with. But I remember sitting and watching the NBA games that were on ESPN thinking, this is wrong. I, I got to be doing, it. I, I need to get back to the NBA. So when I finally um, got back in, Mark Shapiro hired me. And again, another guy that, that changed my life, um, Al Michaels. Well, first it was Brad Nessler, who was the, the lead voice. And then when they made the change to Al, um, you know, I'm thinking, OK, I'll, I'll, I'll get great games. I'm just so happy to be doing it again. And then when the news that Al left, um, I was like, wow, I'm surprised that he's gone. But, you know, I understand all that stuff. And then they, uh, when they called me to offer me the job, I, I remember thinking, no, nah, this this is just like temporary until they find somebody. That's the way I, I thought. I mean, I I, I knew I, I, I called a pretty good game, but the idea of doing the finals didn't quite sink in at first. And I remember, um, I remember saying that. Okay, um, if I do a good job, maybe they'll keep me. Um, but my initial thought was that this is just going to be temporary until they, until they get a big name to come in,
2: like a one and done kind of
3: thing. Yeah, right, right. Now they, they didn't say that. They never said that. You know, I had a contract at the time, but that's kind of the way I felt because you know you you think of people like Marv Albert and. Um, and Al Michaels and, and Jim Nance and all these lead announcers, and I'm I'm not in that I'm not in that category. So that was my that was my initial thought. It
2: was interesting reading the articles from spring of 2006 after you got that job, because you obviously a very doing
3: reading articles from back then.
2: Oh, you know, just doing a little research here. But it was right. funny because you're a very known commodity in New York, but in L.A., you know, there were some articles like, wait, 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 Mike Breen, who who who's this guy? Did you feel you like you were flying under the radar a little bit?
3: Um, yes. And quite honestly, Brian, um, I, I like that. That's, that was okay with me. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, when I took over uh, for Marv after Marv went, went through that stretch where he was taken out, um, you know, that was probably the hardest thing for me because here I am as a young broadcaster, number one, taken over for the greatest basketball play by play voice of all time. And number two, he's he was became had become a friend of mine. Um, so it was it was a really difficult situation because what he was going through, and now I have to come in and take Marv Albert's job. So that was the hardest thing. And it was um, you know, I, I got advice from a number of different people is don't try and be Marv, just be yourself. And and you can win people over. They'll they'll give you a chance, you can win people over. And again, it was one of those things where I, I was so nervous. For that season, I had done Knicks basketball for a number of years on radio, but now to take over from Marv, I was so nervous. And I think it was like two or three days before the season started, I got a handwritten note from Marv sent to my house and, you know, for a young broadcaster to have him write a note that said, Hey, listen, um, you're going to be great. Just keep doing what you always do. Um, you're going to, you're going to have a great year. And then he wrote, of course, a typical Marv, Sorry, you have to deal with Johnny Hoops, and John Andres, which was his partner. Um, but, you know, little things like that where you get a note from him that kind of settled me down and, and helped. And, you know, clearly I had, had some great people around me uh, that had worked with Mark for years that were going to do the same thing for me. So um, those moments are moments you remember.
2: You did that first finals you mentioned with Hubie Brown. But then since 2007, you've done them with Jeff Van Gundy and Mark Jackson, with the exception of the two years Jackson was coaching the Warriors. What's the trick to doing a three man booth in basketball?
3: Yeah, you know what? It's I think the trick is the relationships with the analysts. You know, from, from my job standpoint, obviously, I'm going to talk less because now I have two analysts and that's okay because. You know, they have so much to offer. And, and TV is, is certainly the analyst is the ones that's supposed to shine. Radio it's the play-by-play guy. Um, but I think the key, Brian, is, is for the two analysts, not only to, to respect each other, but like each other. And I think that's the key with those two guys. Um, you know, they have so much fun together in, in teasing and, and, and making fun and going back and forth. But there's real respect. You know, Jeff coached Mark. Obviously, Mark coached in the league, and I think that's why it works so well. There is never um, competition for airtime between the two of them. Often, when we're going to to a uh, to a break or a highlight package is coming up, and one of those has to take it to break, they're pointing to each other. You go, no, you go, you, you go. You know, they're doing it with hand signals. Signals, um, and I think that's what makes it work so much. And um, they have an incredible. Uh, feel for when they're not supposed to say anything. Like when it's my turn to say something at the end of a big game or something, they, they just have this innate feel. I never have to tell them. And people say, Oh, how do you control them? I I don't control those two guys. Number one, they're, they're fun and entertaining, but number two, they have a feel for it as well. Um, but I do really do believe Brian, the reason it works in this instance, because I think often a three man booth is too much, but in this instance, it works because of the respect and admiration they have for each other.
2: So when they're deciding who's going to talk over out of, into a break or over a replay that's often done just by pointing hand signals sitting there at courtside?
3: Right. Now, sometimes producer Tim Corrigan, he's the one that, that, that's in charge. Uh, he'll say in the air, Mark, you take this or Jeff, you take this. But a lot of times we're just going to break and all they're doing, they're just pointing, you, you point, and you go. And Jeff is very um, good about that. Like, he likes to to share all the stuff and, and mark the same thing. So sometimes it is just pointing the fingers at each other.
2: It's interesting last night having another set of eyes there, an extra set of eyes. They both at different points in the game saw that guys were injured away from the ball. So you're calling the play and they're looking down the court and say, hey, Marcus Smart's hobbling over there. He got hurt on that play. I thought that was interesting.
3: Yeah, uh, Mark, is, he has an incredible ability to see things that I don't see. And I don't mean like, you know, why the pick and roll or the staggered screen worked. I mean things about a player where if something seems to be bothering a player or things like that, he picks that up so well. Um, the two of them, you know, there's the phrase all 10. You know, most of us when we watch, we're focused on the ball and who's defending, who's got the ball. These guys, they see all 10 and they see things away from the ball where I'm concentrating on what's happening with the ball. That um, to me, what makes them such great analysts.
2: You told Pablo Torre on the ESPN Daily the other day that your signature catchphrase, bang, originated when you were a student at Fordham, yelling that during basketball games. Do you ever get pushback from a producer about bang?
3: You know, it, I've never, that's an interesting question. No. Um, I pushed back myself when I first used it. I'm like, I don't know, because I was doing radio. I didn't know that it worked. Um, I, I thought, you know, again, I'm a young broadcaster trying to figure out what's the best way to do this. And I'm thinking, well, maybe they don't know that the basket's scored if it's on a radio. So I need to say that it's good so the audience knows. Obviously, they would have known if they got used to hearing it. So I shelved it um, for a while. And then I started doing these high school games of the week on. Uh, Sports Channel America was the name of the company back then. And we do a Friday night high school game of the week. And as you know, Friday nights, high school games in certain parts of the country, the entire town goes to those games. And the place is packed and it's so loud. And I tried it again there on, again, baskets that got the crowd going crazy. And I liked the way it worked because you didn't have to override the crowd. And it was a good, concise, simple way to you know, make a big, excited call, but at the same time not stretching it out, trying to out-scream the crowd. And I, I started to like it then when I started to use it there.
2: When do you decide to upgrade Bang to Bang Bang on a particular play? They do have a timeout. Decide not to use it. Curry, on top! Bang! Bang! Oh, what a shot from Curry! With six tenths of
3: a second remaining! That was never a conscious decision. That was... Um, Uh, an out-of-body experience watching this incredible player having this dream season. And just when you think they were going to fail that particular day, uh, he hits a half-court shot. Steph Curry beat Oklahoma City. And, you know, that was a cumulative bang-bang because of all that had happened that season, that game. He got knocked out with an ankle injury. They were down double figures in the fourth. Finally, somebody was going to beat the Mighty Warriors, and this guy pulls this one out of his hat. Uh, like he had done so many times, and I just, I just lost it, lost it as the basketball fan in me. Um, the fan took over at that time, and when I, when I go back, even to this day, when somebody plays it, I'm like, I'm wincing, like the screaming fool. But I, that was completely losing it as a basketball fan, and and I guess that's a good thing because one of the things I always want to do is um, is whoever's watching you know whether they like my style or not you can not you can't control that but what i want them to feel is that i love basketball and and that's what i hope and and that call certainly shows that i i'm kind of into basketball
2: how did the increase in the number of three-pointers nba players and nba teams were taking change your job
3: you know that that's interesting i thought about this the other day cuz we were talking about uh the very first year in the finals which was 1980 they they in- Introduced the three pointer in seventy nine eighty, in the finals between the Sixers and the Lakers, there were twenty threes taken in the entire finals, one make, one out of twenty. So you know back then it was no big deal, and and I started calling bang usually only on three pointers, but if if I did it on a lot of big three pointers at the end of the game, you know I, I try and keep it to a minimum. I rarely go more than twice in the game. Um, people would get sick of it, so I had to change that. There were so many three pointers. It was early; to, it was easy to pick early on. You know, when you get a feel, which would be a good time to use the phrase. But now there's so many times that you really kind of have to think about it and hold back to later because everybody's shooting threes. I mean, it's. I think it's too much, quite honestly, and, and I wish we'd go go back a little bit uh, in terms of more post play. Uh, but it's a part of the game now, so it's changed my approach in terms of when to use the phrase. That's for sure.
2: Couple of questions about this year's postseason. There have been a bunch of blowouts during the playoffs. What do you do during a blowout?
3: Well, it's it's actually pretty easy with Mark and Jeff. Um, there, there was <laughs> there was one finals game. It was the the, um, the Warriors and the Cavs. I can't remember which year they, they it might have been like 2017. One series where it seemed every single series, every game leading up to the to the to the end of the series was was a blowout. And we were we started talking about our favorite sitcoms, and I even said on the air, "I can't believe I'm calling a finals game, but we're talking about our favorite sitcoms." Those guys have a a great way to, um, you know, a great way to have fun with it, especially in games like that. But it's also dangerous because Jeff starts thinking about rule changes, and that could (laughs) that could go off the rails when he starts. My my favorite one was he was we had done like three or four blowouts in a row. And he said, he goes, all right, I got a new rule. Says if a team is down by 20 points or more, but hits a shot from half court, it's a tie game. <laughs> he really wanted that. And, and, you know, so stuff like that. But, but they're fun with things like that. And, you know, other blowouts, you, you tell it's a chance maybe to tell some more stories, uh, which is one of my favorite parts of the job. is telling stories of who the people are. Um, but you figure it out in terms of ways to fill the airtime. It can be dangerous, though, with Jeff and Mark.
2: (laughs) i got to ask you about the refs, too, because game one of Celtics' nets this year, Jason Tatum hits that incredible shot at the end of the game. You call it perfectly, perfectly.
3: Jalen Brown kicks it out. Smart fakes. Inside. Tatum spins, and he puts it in. Celtics score up on one.
2: And then here come the refs waving their hands. <laughs> you say the shot is waved off. What happened there?
3: Well, first off, I didn't sleep for two nights. Here's the first game of the playoffs. We had this, not only was the game so thrilling and exciting, but I thought it was our best telecast of the year, and I ruined it, completely ruined it. I I, I, um, I was a mess that night because you don't want a, a such a great moment um, you don't want to mess it up, but I did. And it's because it was so close to the end of the game, I thought they were going to put time on the clock and say that he didn't get it off in time. So I didn't make the call that it's over. I wanted to say, I said Celtics four by one, I think, and I wanted to say it's over, but I see Zach So out of the corner of my eye and he's waving it off. So I'm not sure if he's waving it off because it came afterwards i'm not sure if he's waving it off because they want to put more time on the clock and um i guess the wrong one obviously uh thinking that because the way he was waving his hands that's what i felt and i i was i was crushed that night you just you hate to make mistakes like that but you know it is part of the job um uh, but i didn't sleep that night at all brian
2: has the idea that referees are going to come look at every big play a few seconds after you call it does that sit in your head somewhere
3: yeah well that, that was the reason for my my hesitation. I've seen it happen too many times um where you say it's good the game the bulls win or the knicks win, and then all of a sudden they don't win, then you put time back on the clock and you know so you want to make sure it's absolutely, but that was like the perfect storm uh, on something like that and and because they look at those. Those replays, um, you have to really keep a close eye on the clock. And I, I had a good view, but then all of a sudden, when I saw his his, uh, his arms waving, I I uh, I guessed the wrong one.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's just got to be so strange because I mean, I was watching last night. Jordan pulled banks in that shot at the end of the third quarter, and again, you're right. You 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 correctly say that he got it. There we go. And then you start to watch the replay and go, uh oh, <laughs> did, did it get out of his hands soon enough?
3: In real time, I didn't think there was any question. So that's why I, I was confident making the call. But in uh, when and you see it's like you have to slow it down. The ball just leaving his fingertips, which makes it so hard. Now it's a little better if it's a halftime shot or at the end of a quarter shot, as opposed to the end of the game, which you know you really don't want to. But that one, I thought, I thought for sure he had got rid of that one uh, just on time, and that that goes to my one of my pet peeves in in uh, the NBA is players who are afraid to take that half court heave at the end of a quarter because they don't want to affect their three point percentage. Well, it shows you you never know when it's going to go in, and and look at that the you know difference it could make in a in a possible NBA finals game. He would he didn't care if his percentage went down; and he was going to give it a shot. So. Uh, I always I always praise those players who were courageous enough not to affect their three-point percentage.
2: The other one I would ask you about are the reviews for flagrant fouls, which have been kind of interesting. It reminds me a few years ago when NFL announcers were watching replays about the catch rule. <laughs> the replay was, did he catch it? And do we understand or agree with the rule? What do you make of those
3: re- reviews? It's it's uh, impossible to predict uh, the line for what a flagrant is has changed dramatically, and then when it gets to the playoffs, you know they don't want to be so quick to call a flagrant two and eject a player in a playoff game, and then of course it's the subjective uh, way that each official looks at it. You know the, when you do a flagrant foul, it's the officials who are on the on the court that make the call. They can get input from the replay center but it's those that make the call. So a lot of it is subjective. You know, there's certain criteria. That's a flagrant one, that's a flagrant two. But because it's there are different levels of flagrant one, there are different levels of flagrant two, you just can't predict. And compared to what they used to call to what they call now, um, you know, how many times we sounded like, oh, that's, that's going to be a flagrant two. That's definitely a flagrant two. And then it's a flagrant one because you, you can't predict. But you, you do feel frustrated, especially when it's taken them a long time and you've seen the replay now nine times in a row. It's like, what more can you say about it? Just <laughs> tell me,
2: please. Your colleague Sean McDonough had one during a bowl game where the referees kept coming on to explain something, and eventually he just said into an open mic, "Please stop talking."
3: <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm not surprised. That's that's Sean's got a great sense of humor. Uh, I would, <laughs> I'm gonna have to use that. One more to
2: hit you with, and it's an old article. I warn you, 1992, you told the New York Daily News, this is when you first got the Knicks job, I'm not a Marv Albert, so I'm not going to be a legendary play-by-play man. You still feel like you're not going to be a legendary play-by-play man?
3: I, Brian, I, I'm i just so, so thankful and blessed to be calling NBA games. Like I said, and I, I mean it sincerely, um, if If I was just the Knicks radio broadcaster for the rest of my career, I'd have been thrilled. Um, I, I sometimes it's hard for me to comprehend that I've done the finals for so long and and i and I truly believe this. it's because of so many people that have helped me over the years and every year in the finals, um, there's a handful of people before i I, I call uh, game one of the finals this year it was game three that I, I send an annual email to to tell them that I'm thinking about them because they're the reason why I'm there. And I've had so many people. I, I made a speech once uh, after getting an award and the, the phrase I used was, I wish I could bring everybody who's helped me up on this stage uh, to accept this award with me. But unfortunately, there's not a stage anywhere big enough in the world to hold that many people. And I really feel that way. So from that standpoint, I... I, I Words like what you just use, I can't even think about using. I'm just, I'm just grateful to be, be doing what I'm doing.
2: Mike Breen, thanks for coming on the press box.
3: Thank you, Brian. I really enjoyed it.
2: It's time for the second weekly edition of David Shoemaker guesses the strained pun headline. Yeah. Monday's headline about Jurassic World bringing back its beloved Troika characters was. Their jerseys are hung with the Raptors. Today's headline comes from valued listener David Downing. It's from the Syracuse Post Standard and Syracuse.com. Story goes like this. A thief broke into a donut truck early this morning and took it for a joyride before dumping it in the city's inner harbor. No word yet on who broke into the donut truck and drove it off. What was the Syracuse Post Standard's strained pun
0: headline. A thief broke into a donut truck um, mm-hmm. and drove it into the river?
2: Uh, I believe they parked it in the inner harbor would be the area of Syracuse. I, I thought it went in the water too, but they just found it parked somewhere. Um.
0: Uh, donut. I keep thinking of like that old Hertz donut joke when, from when we were kids. Um, don't uh, uh, k- Krispy Kreme. Mm, let's stick with donut. Donut. Um, God, what is it? It's a, it's a mystery. Donut.
2: W- we don't know who did this, David. Um, another another
0: but, word for mystery or for mystery? Like a whodunit? A whodunit? Who, do- who donut? Who oh. donut? Is that really it? Who Donut?
2: (laughs) (laughs) By the way, the Donut truck, the company, was called, wait for it, Glazed and Confused. (laughs) That's too good. I had to delete that from the intro so it wouldn't get too punny there. Uh, He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Production Magic by Erica Cervantes, Shoemaker, and I are back Monday with more lukewarm takes
0: about the media. See you then, David. See you later, Brian.